Chapter Twenty of the Short Line War by Merwin Webster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Harvey. Before the dawn broke on Thursday morning, Harvey was a prisoner. It was so absurd, so ridiculously theatrical, that had he not been too tired to think clearly, his sense of humor would have been equal to the occasion. As it was, he was angry, baffled, desperate. While held in the thicket by Wilkins's gang, he had caught a voice too like McNally's to be easily mistaken. And when McNally struck the match that showed him the papers, Harvey had, with an effort, flopped over on the leaves, bound as he was, and through the bushes had caught a glimpse of McNally's face and figure. While the shooting and the uproar sounded from the cut, Harvey was held in the woods, but before this second encounter his captors jerked him to his feet, tied his handkerchief across his eyes, and led him stumbling away. In a few moments Harvey lost all sense of direction. He figured that he was still on the east side of the track, and in all probability was going southeast on the river road. For a short while he tried to keep the direction, but realizing that he might be turned without knowing it, he gave up and decided to rely upon a chance opportunity to escape. Undoubtedly, his guards were acting simply as agents, and it occurred to him that he might be able to influence them. But as his occasional attempts at conversation brought only profanity in reply, he fell back upon silence. Through his thin bandage he could feel that the light was growing brighter, then he was led from the road, splashing through a ditch and sprawling over another fence. He bumped into a tree. The men jerked him roughly away and led him forward, twisting and stepping from side to side. Occasionally his foot struck a fallen log. Evidently they were in a heavy wood. At best their progress was very slow and was marked with numerous haltings and delays. Finally, about two hours after the start, Harvey was thrust through a doorway, and a lock clicked behind him. He tore off the handkerchief and found himself in a small office, evidently deserted, for the rusted stove, the broken chair, and the floor were thickly coated with dust. There was one window, empty of glass and boarded up from the outside. He looked through a crack and saw the caved-in shaft-house and the straggling waste-heap of a worked-out mine. "'Wonder how long they're going to try this game,' he thought. He picked up the remains of a chair and, tipping it over, sat on the rounds. Harvey was nearly done for. Aside from the strain of the week, and particularly of the night just ended, he was wet to the knees and his head ached from a chance blow received during his brief struggle near the Sawyerville station. His eyelids drooped, and for fear of dropping off to sleep, he rose and walked the floor. Gradually his head cleared. It occurred to him that McNally would have run the risk involved in kidnapping him only because it was very important he should be gotten out of the way. Therefore, he reasoned, it was equally important from his point of view that he remain decidedly in the way. He looked through the crack and saw three men standing a few yards from the window talking excitedly, their voices were gradually rising. "'What you going to do with him?' asked one. "'We can't keep him here.' "'Well, it's only for a few days.' "'But who's going to feed him?' 
Yes, said the third. And how about us? Oh, you'll be all right, from the big man who seemed to be the leader. That's all fixed. Who's going to do it? McNally? Shh. The leader looked around, and all three lowered their voices. Finally, they seemed to reach an agreement, for the first speaker turned and walked rapidly toward the woods, and the others took to patrolling the small buildings. Again, Harvey walked the floor. If he was to be of any service to Jim Weeks during what was left of the fight, it was absolutely necessary that he escape as soon as possible. In the course of his work as Jim's private secretary, he had become fairly well acquainted with the details of his employer's many interests. Nearly all the mines along the M&T were owned or controlled by the capital which Jim represented, and Harvey knew the location of each of these. There was but one abandoned mine in the Sawyerville district, the Valley Shaft. It was about four miles from Sawyerville Station, and perhaps three or four from the Oakwood Club. Therefore, he reasoned, if he once broke loose from the galling restraint, he would soon be in a position to communicate with Jim. Outside, the big man stood directly before the window. His fellow could be heard walking to and fro in the rear of the building. Harvey looked about the room. There was nothing to serve as a weapon, except some part of the stove. He bent down and removed one of the small iron legs, taking care to make no noise. Then he examined the window. The boards were half-inch stuff, nailed on with little idea of security, probably because the office contained nothing worth stealing. He figured that it would be no difficult matter for a man of his weight and strength to force an exit. For the moment, he forgot his weariness. Accordingly, he drew back across the room, and bracing for a second against the wall, he ran forward and threw himself at the boards. They gave way more easily than he had supposed, and a rapid effort landed him squarely on the leader, who had turned at the noise. The struggle was short. Each had received a few hard blows when the man jerked his right arm loose and reached back for his revolver. Harvey took advantage of his open guard to strike a quick blow with the stove leg and brought the fellow to the ground. Harvey rolled him over, took the revolver from his pocket, and picked up his own hat. A noise from behind the building called to mind the other man, and he hurried forward. The other was walking stealthily toward the shaft house. "'Say,' called Harvey. The man turned sullenly. "'Your friend there, he doesn't feel well.' Harvey laughed nervously and gestured with a revolver. "'You'd better look after him. I've got to go now.' He paused to glance back at the big man, who was lying on one elbow and rubbing his head, when he turned and ran toward the woods. Once on the way, however, Harvey's sudden nervous strength deserted him. One of his opponent's blows had cut his scalp, and he was surprised to feel blood trickling down his face. He ran until his breath gave out, then he walked, struggling to overcome the dizziness that was coming on him. After going some distance, he found a bridle path and soon saw the river road before him. The need of hurry urging him on, he left the path to cut across a meadow. With some difficulty, he drew himself upon the fence and paused for a breath with one leg thrown over the top rail. Then he felt a wave of dizziness, and his muscles relaxing, he pitched forward into the long grass. 
good nursing, proper food, and a brief rest were enough to pull together Porter's yielding nerves. There was some delay at first in getting a physician, and Catherine was obliged to wait for the greater part of an hour before the slowly driven carriage brought her father home. Considerable time passed before his improvement justified her in leaving the house, and then it was so near noon that she decided to wait until after lunch. Once on the road behind Ned and Nick, and beside the erect groom, Catherine realized the delicacy of the situation. Up to this moment she had been acting frankly upon impulse. It was so clear to her mind that McNally had been instrumental in the kidnapping of Harvey, and the sudden emotion aroused by the whole affair had so overwhelmed her that for the time her only thought had been to get to Harvey, to be near him, and of some service to him. But Catherine's impulse on this occasion was not far in advance of her reason, and what had begun in a whirl of excitement was continued in a spirit of quiet persistence. To be sure, there was a moment of wavering, but even then she did not think seriously of turning back. Anyway, there was nothing marked or unusual in frequent drives to the club during the crisp golfing weather. It was after two o'clock when she reached the club. The links were dotted here and there with golfers, and the usual autumn quiet hung about the verandas and halls of the building. But in the office there was bustle and excitement. Catherine stood near the wide fireplace in the lower hall, drawing off her gloves and looking through the office door. A man was telephoning, a big man with a quiet voice. In a moment he rang off and turned around. His face interested Catherine, and she watched him as he talked to the steward. She could not help hearing the conversation. "'I've got to have another horse,' the big man was saying. "'I'll pay you whatever your time is worth. "'I want this whole county stirred up in half an hour.' "'But, sir, I cannot leave the club. "'We are short of help as it is, and the caddies are busy.' "'I've no time to talk. "'A man has been kidnapped and very likely injured. "'You get a rig, any kind, a farm wagon, if the horses are good.' and have it here in fifteen minutes. Figure your time at whatever you like, and send the bill to me. He handed a card to the steward, who looked at it with a slight start, and murmuring, Certainly, Mr. Weeks, started down the hall. Catherine stopped him. What is it, Perry? Jim, uh, Mr. Weeks, he wants a horse. You may lend him my trap, and Perry, say nothing of it. Without waiting for a reply, she went into the reading room, picked up a magazine, and throwing open her jacket, sat on the broad window seat. A moment later, Ned and Nick were pulled up on the drive. Jim Weeks climbed in beside the groom, and they hurried down toward the bridge. The magazine lay open in Catherine's lap. She rested an elbow on the window sill, and sat for a long time looking out across the valley. Not two weeks before this day she had stood on the veranda with Harvey, looking at the same picture through the haze of twilight. Then it had seemed like summer. Now it was unmistakably autumn. Then the leaves were only beginning to yield to the touch of the waning year. Now they were aflame and dropping. As she looked, a whirl of them danced across the sloping lawn, the stragglers settling in the grass already marked by the little dabs of red and russet brown. 
farther off in the valley were cornfields, now squares of yellow and bronze and gold. It was a glowing picture, but to Catherine it meant only that summer was dead, and she viewed it with vague regret. The afternoon wore on, but Catherine took no account of it. At a little after four, when Jim Weeks drove up and entered the building, she was startled into looking at her watch. She heard the telephone bell ring and realized that he was talking. Then he paced up and down the hall. She wanted to go out there and ask him about Harvey, whether he was found or whether— she shuddered a little at the thought of injury, but a feeling of helplessness possessed her. She realized that the time was slipping rapidly away. Jim Weeks might go, and she would have learned nothing, would have done nothing, but she had not come altogether in vain. She recalled with half-defiant pride that Jim had used her horses. "'You are Miss Porter?' Catherine started, and turned with a slow blush. Weeks stood gravely looking at her. "'I understand that I have to thank you,' he continued. "'They were your horses, I believe. I hope I have not inconvenienced you by keeping you here, but it was an emergency.' "'Has Mr. West been found?' Catherine struggled to keep the anxiety out of her voice. No. Weeks sat down. It seems impossible to get any word. I've roused things pretty effectively, though, I think. There's a reward up. The sheriffs of both counties are at work, and the farmers are all stirred up. There's nothing to do but wait. If he's found, and by any chance is hurt, they're going to bring him here. Wouldn't it be a good plan to have a doctor here, in case— I don't think it is necessary. Of course, the probability is that he is locked up somewhere and is being held for a day or so. If he is knocked out, it was not done intentionally. They wouldn't dare. At the word they, Catherine winced a little, but Weeks apparently was entirely impersonal. There was a silence, Weeks sitting with slightly drawn brows, but with an otherwise impassive face, Catherine looking out the window. A little later, a wagon came slowly up the roadway. Two men were on the seat, and a third reclined in the box. They were driving carefully, and Jim did not hear the sound of the wheels until a subdued exclamation from Catherine drew his attention. She was sitting erect, her hands gripping a cushion. Jim followed her gaze. Then, without a word, he rose and hurried from the room. A moment later, Catherine saw the wagon pull up at the steps, Weeks running down to meet it. The man beside the driver dropped back into the wagon box and raised the reclining figure. Then he and Jim helped him to the ground. In spite of the soiled clothes, the matted hair, and the bandage across the forehead, Catherine recognized Harvey. When she saw that he could walk, even though leaning heavily on the others, her heart bounded. The three came slowly up the steps. Then she could hear Jim's voice in the hall, evidently issuing an order, and the steward slid one of the hall settees into the room and piled rugs upon it. Catherine rose in some doubt as they entered. She had taken up two of the cushions, one in each hand, and stood holding them. By now it was nearing five o'clock. The sun was about setting, and while outdoors it was still light, the long, low room was already dim with approaching evening, so that not until he was close at hand could she see Harvey distinctly. 
but when she did distinguish the pale face and the weary eyes, her hesitation vanished, and she hastened to lay the cushions on the settee. Harvey evidently had not observed her, for he suddenly drew back. "'Really, Miss Porter, I'm not such an invalid as these people are trying to make out. I don't need to lie down.' He laughed slightly as Jim drew him forward. "'It's just a little stiffness. See here—' He broke away from his helpers and walked somewhat uncertainly to the settee, sitting on the edge. "'What's the matter with that?' "'Lie down, West,' said Jim quietly. Catherine glanced at him quickly. It was a peremptory order, but delivered in a quiet, friendly tone, whose calm assertiveness admitted of no debate. With an impatient gesture, Harvey obeyed. Indeed, as Catherine looked almost shyly at this big, self-contained man, she wondered if it would be possible to disobey him, and with the sudden realization of his secure authority came a wave of pity for her own father, the man who had thrown himself against this human rock and who was suffering for it. She turned away an instant for fear that her face would reveal her emotion. "'Well,' said Jim, looking at his watch, by starting now, I can catch the early train to Chicago. Be careful, West. There's no hurry. I'll wire you in the morning if there is anything important. Miss Porter, may I ask you to see that the steward takes care of Mr. West? I'll send a doctor out. I'm sorry to trouble you. There's no one else. Catherine inclined her head, and then she realized that Harvey and she were alone. Won't you draw up a chair? said Harvey. I want to talk to you. I'm glad you're here. It's an awful bore to be alone when you're this way. His attempt at an easy manner gave Catherine a sense of relief. She sat beside him. I'm sorry you are hurt. How did it happen? I think I fell off a fence. Wonder if I lost my handkerchief. He thrust his hand into his pocket and drew out a revolver, clasping it by the barrel. That's funny. I don't remember. Oh, yes. He stuffed it back into his pocket. What is it? Tell me about it. Harvey looked thoughtfully at her. It occurred to him that to let her know of McNally's actions, which presumably were instigated by Porter himself, would be bringing matters too close to home. No, he replied. It's rather a disagreeable story. If you were a good nurse, you would try to make me forget it. I'm glad you are here. Very glad. How did you happen to come? I often drive out. It is growing dark. I must think about getting back. No, said Harvey quickly. Don't go. I don't want you to go. I want to talk to you. His voice dropped as he spoke, and both suddenly became conscious of a change that had come over them, between them. Catherine sat still, turning her head toward the window, and though she could not see him, she knew that Harvey was looking at her. The room was darker now. "'Have you thought how odd this is?' Harvey went on. "'This conversation. "'We are talking just as though nothing had happened, "'just as though we were the same people who, who bought things at Fields, "'but we aren't. "'There's no use in thinking we are.' He paused to rise himself on his elbow. "'Do you know it is just twelve days since we were here?' Catherine laughed a little. "'You have counted them?' "'Yes. Last night, when I was coming down on the special, I thought about it. 
You know, it seems longer. It seems a year ago. You remember we talked about the M&T, and the next day when you drove me to the station? Do you remember? I've wondered since then, a good many times, what you meant, whether you really wanted to see us win. She started to speak, but he broke in. If I dared think so. You think I am weak. No, if you really want to know what I think. I think you are the strongest girl I ever knew. Catherine, he reached impulsively for her hand, but she drew it away. I think you are, well, I might as well say it. You probably know it anyhow. I love you. I, I don't know that there is anything else to say. Catherine leaned back and looked at him. Her back was toward the window, and he could only see the outline of her head. Are you sure? she asked slowly. You mean, you think I'm not well, that I haven't control of myself. I do love you, Catherine, so much that I can't get along without you. You believe me, don't you? You must believe me. Yes, very slowly. I believe you. Then... I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I... Oh, don't say any more. It isn't right. She rose suddenly as if to move away, but Harvey caught her dress and then her hand. Catherine, you aren't going to leave me this way. Perhaps you don't want me. Perhaps I have been mistaken and foolish. But I love you, and that ought to count for something. It does. You don't understand. She looked out the window for a moment. The first low-lying stars were out. Don't you suppose, she said at last in a labored voice, that I have feelings? Don't you suppose that I... I don't mean that, either. You have been fighting my father. I have helped you. I have helped you to injure him, my own father. He is sick now, and I left him today because... Harvey's grasp tightened. I have been disloyal to him. I have been dishonest, and that counts for something, too. No, we have been good friends. We can still be good friends. Perhaps if it had been different, but it wasn't. You don't mean this, Catherine. She drew her hand away and stood erect, dignified now and calm. I am going home. I know that you love me, and I know that you will not hurt me any longer, for it does hurt me, I will tell you that. But I shall see you. With an effort he raised himself to his feet and stood, weak and giddy, leaning on the back of the chair. I won't give you up. Lie down. You mustn't tire yourself. We don't know what may happen. She steadied his arm as he sat down on the couch. We only know what is right for us now. Goodbye. I will speak to the steward. With throbbing head, Harvey sank back on the cushions. A few moments later, the doctor came in. End of chapter 20